happy Sunday, West Village family. Uh, great to uh, see you, sort of, uh, or at least see a video camera and trust that there's somebody on the other side of it. Um, my name's Chris. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, one of the leaders here at West Village, uh, my joy and privilege to be able to teach and preach the Bible. A couple quick things before we get to work. First thing is this. Just want to say a big happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there, uh, especially to my wife, Kelly. She is lovely. Uh, baby, I love you very much. Uh, Emily or Jacob or Lucas or Tyler, if you're there yet, uh, would you please go and give your mother a big smooch for me? Um, yeah, and I just want to say uh, I, am, I am so blessed uh, and counted a privilege to be a part of this church family with so many amazing women. And I know today is just a, a mixed bag of emotions uh, for so many of us. And so my heart is with you. This is even a hard day in our home for a variety of reasons. And so uh, I understand the grief. And uh, yeah, I just pray that today uh, Jesus's love would be with you, filling you and be sufficient for you. Uh, so happy Mother's Day. The next thing, really quickly, uh, you might have missed this. This uh, was in the big three, but we were having a little bit of technical difficulties out of the gate. At the end of this month, uh, the end of the month of May, we're going to start doing uh, live or like in-person gatherings. So once a month, we are going to be doing gatherings uh, in parks scattered around the city. Um, we will also have like on that Sunday, the last Sunday of each month, we're going to be doing this in May, June, July, and August just to start. We will not be live streaming. Uh, we will have live gathering options for people, but then we're also going to have a Zoom option for people. And our hope with this is to create a more interactive, like less passive experience as opposed to just watching a screen, actually be able to participate in community with one another. And so um, I won't give you the details here, but I'll just say pay attention to our social media feed, websites, Sunday gatherings. Uh, we will communicate it as loud and broadly as we possibly can. Uh, that will be us doing our part. Your part will be paying attention. <laughs> uh, so just keep your eye open for what's out there. And then the last thing is this, just really quickly, I'm uh, just going to drop this and we'll talk about it more later. But <clears throat> uh, in roughly, uh, let me just do the math really quick. I think it's like seven weeks. Uh, our family, uh, me and, and Kelly and, and our kids, we're going to be taking a bit of a break. Uh, the elders have been gracious and have been encouraging and uh, willing and blessing us to take a sabbatical. So we are going to be gone for 12 weeks, July or June, July, and August. Uh, no, sorry, let me try that again. July, August, September um, is when we're going to be gone. Uh, we tried to do this last year, but with COVID, it just wasn't the right time. And so uh, we'll talk more about what that's going to look like. I will also just say this, um, in pre uh, preparation for that, I'm, I'm preaching less. Uh, so you're only going to see me after today three more times, I believe, uh, before I leave, if, if I'm correct. But basically, I'm preaching about half time now. Um, but lots of leaders around here that can do a great job uh, carrying this while we're gone. So no problems there. Anyway, if you have questions, though, uh, shout, uh, shoot them my way. Ask Matt or Ken uh, if you have any questions about that. But we'll be, we'll be communicating that in, in uh, more detail as it gets closer to it. If you have a Bible, grab it. Go to Matthew chapter 21. One of the things we love to do at West Village, we say this a lot, is teach verse by verse through books of the Bible. We're in the Gospel of Matthew. This is, I think, if, if our you know, numerology uh, of sermons is correct. I believe this is week 99 in the Gospel of Matthew. We are almost done, but not really, but almost. So Matthew chapter 21, we're going to get rocking and rolling here. Lots to get through this morning as per usual, picking up in verse 21, okay? So here is uh, what Matthew records. He says this, he says, Jesus entered the temple courts. Let's stop there. This is why it takes us so long because we read four words and then we say, let's stop there. And then I talk for 20 minutes, let's stop there. Um, let me just kind of set up what's happening here because context is king when you're 
uh, interpreting and trying to understand what the scriptures say. What is the context that is that is like kind of happening here as Jesus is about to have an interaction with these religious leaders? Well, here, here's what's happening. If you remember from a few weeks ago, the beginning of Matthew chapter 21, we started uh, what is known as the Passion Week. This was the Palm Sunday text where Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem. And from Matthew chapter, like the beginning of 21, basically more or less right to the end of the gospel, we are going to walk through the Passion Week leading up to the crucifixion of Christ. So Matthew's gospel is moving quickly. And then all of a sudden in the last week, he just kind of slows down. And he really kind of takes that week and like pulls it apart and dives into the details because so much of the life and ministry of Jesus has been leading up to this point. He's coming into the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is like the epicenter of uh, philosophical, religious, moral, legal, historical, like everythingness for the Jewish people. And so it's a big deal that he's coming into Jerusalem. But more than that, he's coming to Jerusalem because ultimately he's going to go to the cross and he's going to die in our place for our sins. He's going to be resurrected to new life. But this is all happening in the city of Jerusalem. But notice what Matthew says here, because this is really, really important that Jesus entered into the temple courts. Now he's been in the temple courts. The temple, if Jerusalem is a significant city, the temple, which is at the center of the city of Jerusalem, is the most significant geographical, um, archeological building in the whole history of God's people. This is where God dwelt. This is where they came. The people would come to have their sins forgiven. This is where they would come to worship, to, to be made right with God. And this week that Jesus is in Jerusalem is the Passover week. So the place is crowded. It's the the high point of the Jewish calendar. So Jesus is in the most significant city at the most significant time, and he's in the most significant place. And what is he doing there? Well, what he's doing is he's confronting the religious leaders. We saw this a couple of weeks ago when, when Matt preached, he, and he preached about Jesus flipping over, uh, flipping over tables in the temple. Last week, uh, he, he made this kind of pronouncement as Andrew preached about uh, you know, these, these fig trees that had leaves but no fruit. And here we're going to see again Jesus coming into the temple to confront the religious leaders. It's a big deal. Where Jesus is is actually a big deal. You might remember uh, like a number of months ago now as we headed into the beginning of 2021 and the American election was all going down. The day that they were like sort of deciding what was going to happen, there was, a, there was an insurrection, some people would call it, an insurrection that took place, right? You might remember this image is like burned into my memory for some reason. There's the Davy Crockett meets Braveheart guy, right? Remember that guy? Everyone remembers that guy. And he's in where? He's in the Capitol building. Like he's right in the epicenter of the American political life. Now he's not in Walmart, which would have been on brand, right? But if he went to Walmart and did that, it wouldn't have been a big deal, right? Like you would expect to see that guy at Walmart, but you don't expect to see that guy in the Capitol building. And by being in the Capitol building, he's making a massive declaration, like I'm taking over. Well, that's what Jesus is doing. Day in and day out, he's gonna come into Jerusalem, he's gonna go into the temple courts, and he's going to have a confrontation with the religious leaders. And here's what Jesus is ultimately doing. And it's, 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 it's a harsh word for the religious people, but it's a good word for us. He's undoing religion. What Jesus is, is doing by coming into the temple courts and by having these kinds of conversations, and, and make no mistake about it, like he is making significant declarations. Like in a couple of weeks, He's going he's gonna to predict the destruction of the temple itself. What is Jesus doing? What is he saying to these religious people? He, he's saying, this is the end. This is the end of religion as you know it. Now, for those of us who are, you know, maybe new to church, new to following Jesus, we're on a spiritual journey or whatever, like if you're the classic 
uh, West Coast espionage, right? Spiritual, but not religious. You would say, I, I hate religion. And Jesus would say, I have good news for you. So, so do I. I hate it. Not about religion. Right? That's the very essence of what Jesus is doing in coming into Jerusalem to die on the cross. What he's ultimately saying is there's no more system that humans can perform or try and, try and do to earn salvation. That, that Jesus, is God himself, comes in the flesh, goes to the cross, dies on the cross in our place for our sins, and in doing so, makes us right with God. In effect, what Jesus is saying by coming into the temple and making the kinds of declarations that we're going to see him make in the, number, uh, in the, in the subsequent weeks is what, he, uh, what he's saying is, I am the fulfillment of the temple. Again, the temple was the place where the presence of God dwelt. Jesus is now saying, I am the presence of God. The, the temple was the place where the people would come to have their sins forgiven. The high priest would perform sacrifices on their behalf and he would declare them forgiven for their sin. And Jesus is saying, I am now the one who forgives sins. I am the Lamb of God who is going to die. My blood will be shed for the sins of the world. The temple was the place where people would come to actually meet with God, commune with him. And Jesus is now saying, that, that happens through me. And you see, the mistake we can make in trying to understand what Jesus is doing is we can, we can, we can think that somehow this is like a metaphorical undoing of religion, right? That Jesus is upending the temple. He's upending uh, Jewish thought and Judaism as a religious system. And what that leaves us then with is sort of this, what, the, the way that Canadians interpret spirituality. And, and that is like this sort of postmodern view of spirituality, where it's like, you know, as long as you believe something sincerely and you're not harming anybody, then you're free to believe whatever you want. Truth is somewhat relative. And that's kind of the functional, like, Canadian golden rule, right? We keep our beliefs private. As long as we hold them sincerely and our beliefs don't infringe on or harm someone else, then, then it's okay. It's, it's all good. That's not what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the end of religion. See, because there's this problem that we have uh, as human beings. Like, there's a an early church father, Cicero, he's like sort of a philosopher and theologian. And he had this, this line where he, he said, the human heart is incurably religious. In other words, what we do as humans is we inevitably take something and turn it into a religion. I mean, I mean just think about what's happening right now, right? Like we're in the middle of a global pandemic. What have we done with COVID? We, we functionally turned it into a religion, right? Do you wear a mask? Don't you wear a mask, right? Which team are you on? This team has this particular set of rules, and this team has a particular set of rules, and depending on which team you're on, there's insiders and there's outsiders and there's ways. How many people did you meet with? Did you know them? Are they in your safe 10? Aren't they in your safe 10? Did you get the vaccination? Is it the antichrist? Is it a microchip? Is Bill Gates taking over the world? Right? We have these, these ways of taking something and turning it into a religion. Politics, it's a religion. Sexuality, it becomes a religion. Heck, here in, on, on Vancouver Island, we have turned not being religious into a religion. It's what we do. And Jesus is coming in here by coming into the temple courts. What he's saying, not just to the religious leaders who he's going to talk to in just a moment, but what he's saying to all of us is that you are broken. The reason that you pursue these religious thoughts is because you recognize that within you, there's something that is broken. There is something that is wrong and you long to be made right. So you look to these lesser things to somehow justify you, 
to make you feel good about yourself, as if you are doing something the right way, doing something good. There's this nagging sense you have within you that in and of yourself, you're not good. And so you pursue these other things to try and somehow elevate yourself to a status of righteous or good. And what Jesus is doing by coming into the temple and what he will do by going to the cross is it's this kind of declaration. It's this demonstration that you can't do it. You can't do it on your own, that his perfect life lived for you and his death on the cross in your place for your sins. That is the thing that saves you. You don't have to try anymore. You don't have to seek to earn it anymore. You don't have to live up to some standard or call others to live up to some standard that you've made for yourself because Jesus did it all. This is why Jesus declares on the cross, and it's, it's good news, friends. He says it's finished. It's finished. It's not up to you. It's up to him. And if we would put our faith and our hope and our trust not in our ability to obey COVID rules or vote the right way or be a particular way or embrace a particular ideology or worldview, but if we would just put our hope and trust in Jesus, become followers of Jesus, his life, his death, his righteousness that we so desperately want, it's applied to us. And so by Jesus coming into the temple courts, I mean, this is, this is significant. So he enters into the temple courts, and then look at what happens next. He's in the temple courts, second half of verse 23. And while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders, right? These are the, the religious leaders. Uh, the chief priests and elders of the people came to him, and they asked a question. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And then they ask again, and who gave you this authority? So I just wanted to set the scene for you. So Jesus is in the temple courts. He's teaching and preaching. Now, a lot of times when we think, like the picture you might have in your mind is like a classic Western church, right? Where you got one guy at the front, you got a whole bunch of, you know, rows of chairs and people listening, or maybe it's like internet church and you're just on your couch in your underwear, sipping a coffee, watching a guy on the TV screen. That's not, that's not what's happening here. Okay, the, the way this would have worked, think more like a Middle Eastern like bazaar or market. There's people everywhere. There's all kinds of rabbis and teachers who are teaching. They have crowds around them, people listening, and they're interacting with one another. Now, keep in mind, Jesus, when he came into Jerusalem, he had a very large crowd with him, right? We remember this from, from the, the Palm Sunday text at the beginning, the beginning of Matthew 21. So he has this massive crowd with him. And he, he's been healing people. He's been, he's been preaching the good news of the kingdom. He's been forgiving sins. And so people want to be around him. So he's in the temple courts and there's all these rabbis who are learned scholars. They have status within the religious community. And then there's this humble, marginalized, functionally homeless Galilean peasant who isn't part of like the system, right? He's not, he's not one of them. And he's over in the corner, and he has this massive crowd of people, bigger than all the other crowds, right? And the religious guys are ticked. They don't like it. They want to have the big crowd, but Jesus has the big crowd. And in fact, Jesus has a big crowd, and he's saying not awesome things about them. So they're not very happy. So, so what do they do? Well, they do what religious people do. They have a committee meeting. 
So they call a committee meeting. They get together, the, the, the elders and the chief priests, they get together and they're like, what are we going to do? This Jesus guy is causing problems. What are we going to do? I've got an idea. Let's try and trap him. Let's ask him a question to try and trap him. Oh, who are we going to send? Well, let's send that guy. Okay, so some poor sucker draws a short straw. He goes out to Jesus and he asks this question. Let's read it again. By what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Now, when they talk about these things, yes, they're talking about the, the broader ministry of Jesus, the healings and all the things that we've already talked about. But really what they're talking about is the last two texts that we've looked at where Jesus is specifically condemning the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the religious systems. So I want you just to think about this with me for a second, okay? Because this is actually, this, this question kind of makes sense. So Jesus comes into the temple and he's confronting these religious leaders and he's saying everything you've lived for, everything you've strived for, everything you've been seeking to build, everything you want in life, no good. I'm actually coming to upend it. I'm coming to undo it. I'm coming to destroy it. Now, if you're one of the religious leaders, you're going to be a little, a little bit upset about this. And they were upset. So really what they're saying to Jesus is, who says? Like, who are you? Who are you to say this to us? And it's easy for us to look at this story. We, we kind of know how it ends, right? And so we know, we know how the story ends. And when you know how the story ends, it's hard to, it's hard to detach that from your experience in the moment. But, but just think about this for a second, because Jesus comes to us all the time. And he says, I want to destroy the little temples in your heart. The things that you've built within your own heart, your own way of being, your own, your own sense of self-righteousness, this religious system that you've set up. And it might even be like churchianity, you know? Not, not following Jesus, but like churchianity, checking boxes, doing the right things, trying really hard to be a good person. Not that those are bad things in and of themselves, but if those are the things that we put our hope and our faith and our trust in, those are the things that we look to to justify us and Jesus is coming in. He says, I want to destroy them. And what happens in that moment? I mean, just think about this with me for a second. You got to be honest with yourself. In the moment that Jesus comes and he confronts, what happens? Well, inside your heart, you have, you have chief priests and elders. And they come out. And they have a committee meeting in your heart. And they're like, I don't know. I don't know about this Jesus guy. Like, who does he think he is coming in here trying to call the shots? We don't, we don't want anything to do with him. And we look for ways to discredit Jesus. And that's exactly what these guys are doing. Who are you? Who do you think you are that you can tell us how we are going to live our life? And friends, if we're honest, this is how we deal with Jesus. This is how we respond to Jesus. But at the very core of what they're asking, I think is perhaps the most important question that any of us could ask, and that is this, who do we think Jesus is? Not who do you think you are, Jesus, but who do we think you are, Jesus? See, the question of authority that they're asking is like, like at the very essence of, of these declarations that you're making, are these 
Are these divine in origin? Are these, are these inspired by God or are these something else? Are you like a crazy man? And we have to wrestle with who we actually think Jesus. Like, where does he sit in our life? Where do we place him? Do we want to push him off to the corner, bring him out every once in a while, dust him off, bring him out at dinner parties, you know? Or is he at the center? Is he at the center of our hearts, the center of our lives? And everything we say and everything we do orbits around him. We've got to deal with this. We have to wrestle with this. How are we going to respond to Jesus when he comes into our temple and he starts messing around? Because the reality is everybody loves Jesus until he starts messing around with the furniture, right? As soon as he starts messing around with the furniture, now all of a sudden it's like, I'm not sure I'm down with this anymore. I like the Jesus that like tells me how great I am and builds up my self-esteem and uh, tells me how much he loves me. But the Jesus that actually calls me to repentance, calls me to humble myself, challenges my ideas. I don't like him. I don't like him. Who do you think you are, Jesus? Can't tell me what to do. And just think for a second right now about the moment we find ourselves in. Like, what is, what is the temple, if you will, of the secular age, right? What is the temple of the, the moment that we find ourselves in as a culture? It's, it's the temple of, of autonomy. It's this idea that, like, the way that we want to live our lives is as if we are the only ones whose opinion matters. We get to call the shots. We get to decide what is right. We get to decide what is wrong. And anything that seeks to infringe or, or, or put itself against our our innate desires, it's actually evil. So Jesus comes into the temple of our lives. He comes into the temple of our culture and he says, this thing's a mess. I am God. You are not. You need to do what I'm telling you. And we say, no, 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 no. We're not interested at all. And and the reality for us as a culture is we want no one, nothing to tell us how we are supposed to live our lives. I mean, just think about the way that we view the world. You think about right now the, the way that we view sexuality, the way that we view race, the way that we view gender. We want, we, we don't want to do anything that would in, infringe on a person's ability to be exactly who they think they are. We don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. Feelings become the highest ideal. And we equate human freedom with the ability to do whatever we want. And we think anything that's going to come in and upend our view of the way that the world works is actually bad. It's going to harm us. But the reality is this. Think about this with me for a second. What is Jesus coming in to do? He's coming in to upend the religious system. He's coming in to put on display the love and the grace and the mercy of God. He's coming in to lay down his life for people who are, who are going to kill him. He's coming to bring something that's better than what the people are already experiencing, but they can't see it because they're blinded by their own desire for their own way of life. And we think that if there's anything that's going to step in the way of us doing whatever we want, that it's a bad thing. But the reality is this. True freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want. That is not true freedom. That's a prison. True freedom is the ability to live in the way that is going to maximize your flourishing and maximize your joy. 
True freedom is when we humbly submit to the one who knows more than us. When we take ourselves out of the center of the story, we place God at the center of the story. We've experienced true freedom. I mean, just imagine with me for a second if I had here on this table with me a fishbowl with water in it and a fish in it, and we looked at the fishbowl, and we looked at the fish within the water, and we felt sorry for the fish because he's trapped in this prison. He's trapped in this prison of water, and we wanted to set the fish free, right? So I wouldn't do it because I'm a nice guy. So I'm going to call Andrew up. He's not that nice. And Andrew, take the fish out of the fishbowl, and he does, and he puts it out here on the table. What's going to happen? Fish is going to die. Why? Because that prison, the water, was actually keeping the fish alive. See, the water and the bowl weren't an infringement on the freedom of the fish. They were actually allowing the fish to live. What Jesus is saying here is, he's not saying, I want to come and rob you of fun. I want to come and rob you of joy. What he's saying is, I want to come and bring freedom. I want to come and replace something in your life that is broken with something that is far greater. I want you to taste. I want you to experience. I want you to know what it's like to be free. To enjoy the riches of the grace and the mercy of God. But you can't do it where you're at. You need to come to me. You got to stop going to the temple. You got to come to me. You got to stop going to your religious systems. You got to come to me. You got to stop going to your cultural ideas and ideologies. And you need to come to me, friends, and, and, and don't hear, this could be grossly misinterpreted, okay? So don't hear what I'm not saying. Just hear what I am saying. You got to stop going to church. You got to come to Jesus. You got to come to him. You got to sit with him and be with him and know him. But here's the beautiful thing. He entered into the temple. He came to them. He's pursuing you. He's pursuing me. There's this story in Luke chapter 15 where Jesus tells a parable to give us a picture of the heart of God. He talks about these two sons. Most of us know this as the the story of the prodigal. There's the younger son who goes off and, and, and lives in rebellion, but then there's the older son who stays home. And what, what Jesus is trying to show us is that that older son is actually more lost than the younger son. And there's this beautiful reality in that part of the story, the second half of that story, where the father actually leaves the party. They're having a party to celebrate the return of the prodigal. He leaves the party to go out to the field to see his older son. And he begs with him to come back into the party. That's what Jesus is doing right here. He's coming to the religious leaders. He's coming into the temple. He's coming into your life. He's coming into my life, and he's begging you. He's begging me, come. To me, trust me, let me in. And we have to wrestle with that. We have to wrestle with who do we think Jesus actually is? Who does he say he is? By whose authority? Well, Jesus responds as he always does to these religious leaders. Look at what he says here. In verse 24, Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. So Jesus does like a Jedi mind trick, right? Like he he never answers these questions directly. And there's a reason for it. I mean, some of this is just the way that rabbis would interact with one another. They would, this was the way that they 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 debated things. 
But there's also the reality that Jesus doesn't want to give to these men an answer. We'll see why in just a second, but part of the reason why is because he knows that they will kill him. That's where this is going to go. Ultimately, these men are going to kill him because of his answer to that question, by whose authority do you do these things? That's what is going to get Jesus killed. And he's not ready to go to the cross yet. He still has things to accomplish. And so he doesn't give them an answer. He says, I'm going to ask you a question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. And then here's his question. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or was it of human origin? So Jesus asks the religious leaders a question in response to their question. And and it's it's an important question. Because if you remember back in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus, as he started his public ministry, he was baptized by John. John the Baptist is his cousin. Uh, John was known by the people of the day as perhaps the last, they wouldn't have used this term, but the last Old Testament prophet. And John preached a, a, a message of repentance to the people of God. Jesus came to John the Baptist and, and John baptized him. And that was the beginning of Jesus's ministry. But not only did John baptize him, John said that Jesus was greater than he was. He called him the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. He said that he was not even worthy to untie the sandals of Jesus. And so Jesus is actually asking these guys a question that will give them the answer. If you answer this question, you will have the answer to your question. Because if John's baptism is from heaven, then guess what, guys? My authority comes from heaven. But if it's of human origin, then I'm just another teacher in the temple. Now look at how these religious leaders respond. They discussed it among themselves. They have another committee meeting. This is what religious people do. Let's have a meeting. And they said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the people for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they realize quite quickly that Jesus has put them between a rock and a hard place. Here's why. Because they, they know that if they answer that John is from, uh, John's baptism is from heaven, then they have to concede that Jesus is also from heaven. So they don't want to say that. That, that, would not, that would not go well for them. They would then have to concede everything that Jesus is saying is true, that he's, he's actually the son of God. He's actually coming to upend the religious system and everything that they have believed and held on to, it no longer has any merit. They don't really want to give in that easily. Just like you and me, they're hard-hearted, they're holding on to their brokenness, they're holding on to their sin, and they don't want to let go. So what's the other option? Well, they could say human origin, right? John's baptism is of human origin. It wasn't divine. John was just a crazy guy. And so therefore, your baptism means nothing. But here's the problem. The people, meaning the nation of Israel, the people of God, they actually held John up in great esteem. They they loved John. And so these religious leaders, they're terrified. Because they don't want to do anything that's going to upend the crowd. Now, just as an aside, all throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's never a good thing to be a part of the crowds. The crowds are are never the the group of people that get Jesus. In fact, for the most part, there aren't too many people that get Jesus, but the crowds are constantly leaving Jesus, rejecting Jesus. In just a few chapters, what are we going to see the crowds do? They're going to shout out, crucify him. 
The beginning of Matthew chapter 1, Hosanna, Hosanna, Jesus, we worship you. A few chapters later, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And these are the crowds that the religious leaders are willing to placate to. And there's this temptation in all of us to placate to the crowds. If you're watching this and you're like a high school student, you get this, right? You go to school. I think I'm the only Christian. I feel like I'm swimming upstream. All my friends, you know, they're not loving Jesus. They're not following Jesus. They're looking at porn. They're talking about stupid stuff. They're doing stupid stuff. And everything in me wants to go with the crowds. It's not a good idea. You go to the office and the crowds, the the way that that business is done, it goes a particular way. You work on a a construction site, the things that get talked about a particular way, and it's all opposite of Jesus. And everything in us wants to go with the crowds. You're you're a mom and you go to the playground with all the other moms and it's gossip, 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 right? The, The crowds. There's this temptation within us to placate to the crowds, but the reality is this. Jesus calls us to swim upstream from the crowds. I mean, these guys are lame. These guys are super lame. Why would we ever want to follow the crowds? But even more than that, Not only is there this sense in them which they don't want to placate to the crowds, notice what's happening. And this is, this is the, most important, the most important thing we can see about their response to Jesus' question. They're not even seeking the truth. Like nowhere on this committee meeting's agenda was the, well, what's actually the truth? They don't even want to know what is real. Why? Because they want to defend their position. Not just their theological position, not just their intellectual position, but the position of their hearts. They want to defend their sin. They want to defend where they stand. They're not willing to let go. It's too hard. They're insincere. They're they're lying to themselves. They're lying to Jesus. There's a Canadian um, psychologist, professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. He's much much more famous in the last few years. Um, His name is Jordan Peterson. Some people love him. Some people hate him. It's not the point that I'm trying to get after here, but he wrote a book called The 12 Rules of Life. And in that book, he essentially lays out what he, he describes as 12 principles you can live your life by that will just maximize your enjoyment of life. And there's uh, one of the rules, rule number eight, that I, I use with my kids a lot. I say this all the time, and I, and I try and live by it. Uh, the rule says this, tell yourself the truth. Tell yourself the truth, or at least don't lie to yourself. And Peterson's point in, uh, in saying this is that we as, as a, a people, we have this proclivity to lie to ourselves about who we are, what we want, what we're actually in pursuit of, what we're actually believing, right? Like we, we, we have this innate ability, like the prophet Jeremiah would say it like this, the human heart is deceitful above all things. Like you can't trust your heart. Like tell me if you've ever experienced this before, right? Like you wake up on a Monday, you look at yourself and you're like, this isn't going well, right? COVID-19 is all over this thing. Like, not like the disease, like the 19 pounds, okay? <laughs> I have COVID-19, not the 
cough thing. The I'm overweight. That's what I'm trying to say. I'm overweight. So I'm going to go to the gym. So you get up, you go to the gym. Like today's a new day. It's Monday and everything good always starts on a Monday. And so you go, you work out and you're like committed. You like write out a eating meal plan and everything. And you get home and you have dinner. Maybe you go to some friend's house for dinner, although you can't do that because it's COVID. So you're outside, whatever. I don't care. It doesn't matter. Here's the point. Dinner, you pick through, right? You skip the carbs. You load up on the veg. It's good. Feeling pretty good about yourself. And then what happens? Dessert. The evil dessert comes out. Chocolate cake. And whoever's serving the dessert looks at you, you want a piece of you want a piece of chocolate cake. And there's like this thing that happens, right? Inside of you. This kind of little conversation happens. You're like, well, I did do pretty good today. I I never, I never have dessert. Meanwhile, you probably had ice cream the day before and a greasy hamburger for lunch. What do you do? Give in. Why? Because you're lying to yourself. We do this all the time. We lie to ourselves about who we really are, what we really want, and how we need to get there. And that's exactly what these Pharisees are doing. They're not being honest. Peterson says this, in, uh, in his book, he says, taking the easy way out and telling the truth. Those are not merely two different choices. They are different pathways through life. They are utterly different ways of existing. See, here's what's happening in this moment, Jesus is pressing the religious leaders. He's pressing up against us. And there's this moment. It's like dessert is being passed across the table to us. And we have this opportunity to be ruthlessly honest about where we stand. Ruthlessly honest about what we need. Ruthlessly honest about our brokenness, about our sin. And I'm not talking about the first time you come to Jesus. I'm talking about every single moment of every single day, but where you stand right now as it pertains to Jesus. What are the little temples in your life that Jesus is coming to upend and your chief priests and your elders, they're having a committee meeting right now in your heart, trying to give you an out. He's pressing us and we have to decide Are we going to take the easy way out? Or are we going to tell the truth? And yeah, it might be a little bit harder, but we know on the other end, it's going to bring maximum joy because at the end of the day, here's what we get. We don't just get a better life. Like Peterson's describing a better way of living. Jesus is offering himself. Yeah, you got to sacrifice. Yeah, you know, you got to tear down that little temple, but do you know what you get on the other side? You get Jesus. It's a lot better than chocolate cake. You get Jesus. And so we got to wrestle. We got to be ruthlessly honest with ourselves. Oh, I only drink once in a while. Oh, I only do this once in a while. It's all lies. It is all lies. And here's what we say, because look at what the religious leaders say. It's the, it is the lamest answer ever. We don't 
know. They know. They know the answer. They're standing in front of Jesus. They're looking at Jesus right in the eye, and they know the answer, and what do they say? I don't know. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1, suppressing the truth, that we know the truth of God, that it's been made plain to us, but we suppress it. And the net result of suppressing the truth of God in our lives is what? It's destruction and it's death and it's compounded sin in our lives. It's broken marriages, it's broken relationships, it's hurt, it's pain, it's frustration. Why? Because you lie to yourself. You lie. You look Jesus in the eye. He says, hey, I've got an idea. Why don't you give me that? And I will give you my love, grace, and mercy and heal you. And you're like, I don't know. Who are you again? I don't think we can trust you. We don't know. We don't know. Jesus is like, he's sitting there in the temple court with you asking you to give it to him. You're looking at him and you say, we don't know. And then look at what Jesus says. And this isn't a happy ending. I don't write the mail. I just deliver it. And then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority am I doing these things. Neither will I tell you by what authority am I doing these things. Friends, this is a damning condemnation that Jesus gives to the religious leaders. You know what he says to them? Fine. You don't want to be honest? I'm going to give you exactly what you want. I'm not going to answer you. When we have that moment with Jesus and we suppress the truth, there comes a point where he says this to us. I'm not going to tell you who I am. I'm just going to walk away. Now, don't hear me wrong. There is an endless amount of grace, love, and compassion from Jesus for you. But we have to ask the question, what do we really want? What are we really after? Jesus is sitting right there in front of you. And you need to ask the question, do I want him? Do I want him? Let me pray for us, Lord Jesus. It's a harsh word. It's a heavy word. pray our hearts would not, not be hard like these, these religious leaders. I pray you would give us soft hearts of repentance, that we wouldn't suppress the truth, that we wouldn't lie to ourselves, that we wouldn't deceive ourselves. But we would, like the Apostle Paul says, use sober judgment in discerning where our hearts are at. I mean, the beautiful thing about you, Jesus, is that you don't condemn us. You don't leave us. You invite. I mean, here you are, the hardest-hearted people in this, the, the Gospel of Matthew, and you're pursuing them, inviting them to come, giving them an opportunity to respond and repent. And they won't. Jesus, spare us. Spare us from ourselves. 
We pray in your name, Jesus. And all God's children said, amen. Amen. Thank you, church.